I will read this morning as is our pattern, and then you may be seated and we'll pray. 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is the only thing that will bring us life this morning, and I thank you that we have been given this opportunity to study it and meditate on it and learn from it. I ask that you would strengthen me to preach boldly and powerfully from this letter of John this morning, and that your people would hear what you have for them to meditate on. We ask for the Spirit's guidance this morning. Move among us, your people, we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, the church in its history has had its fair share of theological controversies that it has had to work through. Some of those theological controversies go as quickly as they came, and some continue to this day. One of the false teachings that has stood the test of time from as early as John's readers to today has been Gnosticism. Gnostics were a group of religious ideas and systems which were formed in the 20, I'm sorry, in the first century AD among Jewish and early Christian sects. They elevated or emphasized the personal spiritual knowledge above the orthodox teachings, traditions, and authority of religious institutions. Gnostics believed that anything material, anything that you could physically touch or see or sense was inherently flawed or evil, and even went as far as to say the physical world was made evil by an evil god. Therefore, all things material must be warped. They would deny the importance and goodness of the physical world, including all created things. This inerrant thought has permeated generation after generation in many forms, and in our own, and our own generation has not escaped from this heresy. If you think about the major sin conflicts that have skyrocketed in our day, 
it's an easy comparison to see how two big ones, race slash CRT and gender identity can be linked to this ancient heresy. In fact, in 2019, Dr. Vodi Bakum argued this position regarding race, coining the phrase ethnic Gnosticism. He connects the idea of ethnic superiority to Gnosticism to define the idea that black people and any, any other ethnicities as well have the ability to possess secret knowledge of motive, intent, and goals in specific situations such as the case involving police officers and black men. Ethnic Gnosticism is completely disconnected from real world tangible data, he says, the cold hard facts and presumes on situations without the necessary information about the individuals involved that would lead to a proper conclusion. Again, it's what they think, not what they see. Dr. Dr. Bauckham stated, the Black Lives Matter organization is using a Marxist ideology with a postmodern destructive goal to fuel the flames of ethnic Gnosticism in our culture. The organization exists to disrupt society. Another form of Gnosticism can be seen in the transgender movement. Author N.T. Wright wrote in a letter to the editor in the Times, quote, Sir, the articles by Claire Fogues and Hugo Rifking and the letters about children wanting to be pandas, dogs, or mermaids show that the confusion about gender identity as a modern and now internet-fueled form of the ancient philosophy of Gnosticism. The Gnostic, one who knows, has discovered the secret of who I really am behind the deceptive outward appearance. This involves denying the goodness or even the ultimate reality of the natural world." End quote. I think Bauckham and Wright are correct to at least point out the similarities between these current day ideologies that tell us that we can be who we want to be, and that our physical attributes should not hold us back, who we feel, hold us back from who we feel our true selves are. With that line of thinking, you can easily see why one shouldn't be able to manipulate their own world however they desire today. Pastor Toby Sumter had this to say about Gnosticism. Gnosticism is always a power play. The genius of secret knowledge is that it can't be pinned down. It morphs and bends and modifies and inverts at will, and turns out that the will is the will of whoever happens to have the adulation, which means excessive admiration, of the masses of the moment. And it is the erratic, emotive fix that defines the demand of the moment. It is not reasonable, and therefore it doesn't care about reason, facts, evidence, history, testimonies, or witnesses." End quote. Well, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon articulated, and this Gnostic teaching was one heresy John had in mind as he was writing this letter to the original audience in the first century. This heresy was a belief of the day that John had to openly oppose. Some early converts to Christianity thought that Jesus might be a new Gnostic cult leader, and his readers would have potentially been swayed by the Gnostic teachers who praised gathering knowledge at the expense of obedience and ultimately denied the sonship of Christ because someone as holy as God could not possibly live in an impure human body 
among sinful men. So this beloved apostle John set about to anchor his whole letter in the importance of Christ in his physical form to the fellowship, obedience, and the pure light of God. Well, let's take a deep dive into the first chapter of this, uh, this epistle of John. Let's look back at verse 1. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Notice what John is doing here. He's coming out of the gate full throttle with who Christ is, packing a punch into the very gut of the Gnostic heresy of the day. This is not unlike John's gospel, where his opening line links Jesus back to creation, showing the closest possible fellowship with God. If you remember, John started that book by claiming Jesus was God and made sure to emphasize Christ's full deity by stating that Jesus was God. John held nothing back when he rooted his account of the life of Christ to the full deity of Christ, his eternality and his distinct personal existence. And he does so here as well. Look at that first word used here to describe what was from the beginning. He says the word that. He doesn't say Jesus Christ, who was from the beginning. He says that which, which is interesting because it's a broader term than the word who. What John is getting at here is not only was Jesus there in the beginning, but the person and the message of Jesus Christ were both at the beginning. This message being God's revelation or the gospel. And this is what he confirms in verse 2 and 3, that this message was something that was proclaimed. And not only was it proclaimed from the beginning, but it was proclaimed throughout history. Jesus was from the beginning and is the word of life. We want to make sure that we do not miss John's main point here. We as modern day followers of Jesus Christ can trust the historical fact that Jesus was and is fully man and fully God. And so without delay or formal introduction, John eagerly presents the evidence to support that truth. And if you notice with me, John continues with a progression of importance using terms to establish Christ's physical nature. It says John was heard, he was seen, he was looked upon, and he was touched. Each one progressed a little more to build the credibility of Christ incarnate. We can hear without knowing something. One can even claim to see without knowing something. But when we get to touch something, it is one of the greatest proofs of existence. It enters the realm of reality. We also see John establishing his authority as an eyewitness uh, to the life and ministry of Jesus and to lay the foundation on which he'll continue writing this letter. Remember, John was one of the 12 disciples that was with Jesus up until the time of his, his ascension, and not only that, but he was also one of the three who had seen Jesus uh, transfigured upon the mount. He had a first-hand account of the life and ministry of Christ. Jesus was not a voice from heaven, or a spirit that could not be experienced. No, he was known by people and their physical senses. If you remember in Luke, 
after Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples, Jesus told them, See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Brothers and sisters, Jesus not only is a spirit who was from the beginning, he also had a physical body and still has since his stooping down to dwell into the realm of men. He was fully God, the ancient of days, and remains fully God and now fully man. And this truth, though it may sound at odds with one another and something we take for granted, is actually an important part of our Christian faith. The entirety of God and the fullness of humanity did not mix together, but rather each nature dwelt in fullness without lessening or changing the other. His humanity did not lessen his deity, and his deity did not make his humanity superhuman. Christian te- uh, scripture tells us that he was a baby, and that he became tired, and that he experienced hunger, and that he had feelings of mourning and love and of anger. And this is an important theological statement that is being made here, because without Jesus' humanity, we don't have a blood sacrifice for our sins, nor do we have a physical resurrection. The former required for the covering of our sins, and the latter required for the defeat of our sins. And without the deity of Christ, our redemption would have been impossible because he would not have been able to be sinless and perfect. Again, a requirement for the true and lasting forgiveness of our sins. This is the glorious truth of the hypostatic union. Hypotasis meaning the underlying state or underlying substance and is the fundamental reality that supports all else. Jonathan Edwards calls this an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. When thinking of our relationship with the Trinity, I thought David Mathis's comment here was helpful. He says, quote, because of this hypostatic union, Jesus Christ exhibits an unparalleled magnificence. No one person satisfies the complex longings of the human heart like the God-man. God has made the human heart in such a way that it will never be eternally content with that which is only human. Finitude can't slake our thirst for the infinite. And yet, in our infinite humanity, we are significantly helped by a point of correspondence with the divine. God was glorious long before he became man in Jesus. But we are human beings, and in an, an unincarnate deity doesn't connect with us in the same way as the God who became human. The conception of, God, of a God who never became man, like Allah, will not satisfy the human soul like the God who did. End quote. And this is why John starts this letter this way. John knows that walking in the light, as he will quickly get to, requires fellowship with God. And our fellowship with God is only possible through Christ, a real man, a true man. Jesus, uh, sorry, John did not believe this lightly either. He did not accept this message on a whim. He says he heard it, and he touched it, and he saw it. Think about what the apostles saw. They saw people being raised from the dead. They saw people being healed from lifelong afflictions. 
they saw and carried leftovers from the feeding of thousands and thousands of people, not once, but twice. They watched his death and then saw him alive before his ascension. The apostles experienced firsthand the manifest life of Christ and saw this fully man, fully God, the word of life. And John knows that this is an, an eternal truth, one that cannot be negotiated. That's why he spends so much time on it. In verse 2, John expounds on verse 1 with a parenthetical exposition on the phrase, word of life. That which John is referring to is the life, he says. This probably brings to mind the words of Christ in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John makes it abundantly clear that what he is talking about is actually a person, namely Jesus Christ, the one who is distinct from God the Father in his manifestation and with the Father. Again, we see a repetition of John's intimate knowledge with Christ. John saw it, he testified to it, and he proclaimed it. This was the job of the apostles, to proclaim the word and work of Jesus. In verse 3, for the third time, John uses the verb to see. He really wants his readers to know the core of the apostolic message, which is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has appeared in human flesh. He is warning the readers against the false doctrines that deny the human nature. <clears throat> the physical appearance and the bodily resurrection of Christ. It is so important that we see that Christ was eternal, that he was with God, and that he has been revealed to man. And John goes on to say why this is important for us to know, that the word is life. It is so that we may have fellowship as the apostles had fellowship. In fact, if you skip over to chapter 5, John reiterates the reason for his writing when he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John is inviting his readers and us to the fellowship of the apostles who are the eyewitnesses of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, and whose fellowship is with the Father and with Jesus Christ. And we see here, brothers and sisters, that fellowship is important, both our fellowship to one another and our fellowship to God. So what is fellowship? Well, one person simply defined it as two fellows and a ship. <laughs> what are these two fellows doing in the same ship? They're going the same way, the same direction. This picture of two or more people who share the same thing. It's, it is that which we have together. It's what we have in common. Amos 3 asks, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Think of the fellowship of the ring. What was the purpose of the nine members that were a part of this fellowship? Why did they come together? They came together to take the one ring to Morador, the only place where it could be destroyed. They all had one purpose, around one goal, and this gave them fellowship together. What other time would you find hobbits, men, elves, dwarves, and wizards going on a journey together? These Middle-earth dwellers had fellowship because they had been brought together by the same desire. 
So John states that he proclaimed this truth so that we also could be a part of this fellowship, so that we could join John and the other apostles in common fellowship with the Father and with Christ. The Greek word used here for fellowship is koinonia, and it literally means a partnership. Interestingly, frequently outside of the New Testament, uh, this Greek phrase is used for the marriage relationship, or sometimes even the marriage bed. This is the closest type of relationship shared between two people. John is saying that they have fellowship with the Father and the Son, and their desire is for us to have this same level of fellowship as well. Well, let's look at three things about our fellowship here in this and the remaining verses. First, we can, we can be certain of both our fellowship with God and with one another when we are walking in light. Verse 6 tells us if we pretend we have fellowship with one another but are walking in darkness, then it's all a farce. This includes pretending fellowship with other friends or families outside of our homes, but within our four walls, there is bickering and enmity. Fathers and mothers, make sure to recognize this in your children and to extinguish it quickly, a lack of fellowship in your home among one another, especially if you see easy fellowship with friends here at Christ the King. We cannot say we walk in the light when we have or allow a symptom of darkness. Lack of fellowship with our closest neighbors lurking about is a symptom of darkness. But the opposite of that is also true, that when we are walking in the light, we have fellowship. And not only that, but the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all sin. We'll come back and spend some more time on the doctrine God is light in a moment, but I want you to see this promise here, both in the positive and the negative. If you refuse to set your life in harmony with God's will, you cannot claim to have fellowship with God. Or if you do profess to live for God, but you're walking in a way contrary to God's law, you still cannot have fellowship with God. If you are here today and you do not know and obey the commands of Christ, you are alienated from God and from his fellow man. For if you find this heart present in you, consider long whether there is opposition between you and the one who is able to bring you into this marvelous light. For if this light is not in you, no, there's no, if this light is not in you, then there is no peace in your life. There is no harmony. There is no fellowship. Instead, there is discord or disorder and enmity. Ephesians said that you are dead in your trespasses and sin, that you follow the course of this world, and that you follow the spirit that is in the sons of disobedience. You live in the passions of your flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind and are called a child of wrath. If you cannot tell you are in a bad state, you are walking in darkness, as John says. But there is hope for you. The very next verse I was reading from in Ephesians gives us that hope. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with us, raised up with him and seated with us 
sorry, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the wonderful news of the gospel, the wonderful news that brings us into certain fellowship with God, that if you repent and believe, you will be forgiven, and you will be brought into fellowship with God, just as verse 9 says, a truth that we are so grateful for. Well, if you are in Christ this morning, you are walking in the light. And we also have certainty of fellowship with the Almighty God. We will stand before God through the purifying work of Christ, the only way we can stand before our Maker. We will also desire to walk in sustaining, healthy, and strengthening relationships with our fellow man. Jesus told us to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, second, the character of our fellowship will be personal. Everything John has said about our ability to know Christ is a personal fellowship. It is intimate with Christ. It will be peaceful, or as John puts it, our joy will be complete. And it will be pervasive. We are either in complete light or complete darkness. Listen to verse 7 from the second chapter of 1 John. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because, of the, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So what does God share with us? What do we have in common with God? The truest, most intimate fellowship we have is based on the truth that God has revealed about his son. That's what verse 3 says. It has to be personal to us. We have to believe in the Son and what God has said about his Son. There are plenty of other religions that have Jesus, but unless they teach the whole counsel of God about who God says Jesus is, there's no way for us to have fellowship with them. See Catholics who worship and elevate Mary above Christ. See Mormons who teach that Jesus is the literal Son of God and his goddess wife. Or see Jehovah's Witnesses, who believe that Jesus was created by Jehovah as the archangel Michael before the physical world existed, and as a lesser, though mighty God. We cannot have fellowship with that. And third, this fellowship has conditions attached to it. Again, both negative and positive conditions. We will first look at the negative. He says we cannot lie about our state. Listen to John repeat himself over and over. He says, if we have fellowship while we walk in darkness, we are a liar. 
Again, if we say we currently have no sin, we are a liar. And again, if we say we have never sinned, we are liars and his word is not in us. Three times he repeats this truth. It is therefore not possible to lie and be in fellowship, neither horizontally with one another or vertically with God. This is why it is important that we are known as people who repent. Imagine someone who is never wrong or can never do wrong. It's always someone else's fault that something happened, or they're always deflecting a rebuke and point out the speck in others' eyes when the log in their own eye is acknowledged. Very early in our marriage, this was me. I always put my sin back on my wife and blamed her. This was because of my hidden sin. I was lying to her, she just didn't know it yet, and it affected our fellowship. It wasn't until my sin was brought from darkness into light and we were both in agreement with one another and with God about my sin that true fellowship was experienced. Likewise, since fellowship is what I have in common with God, if I say that I do not sin, if I say that I do not have sin, then I do not agree with what God says about me. They're incompatible. But now let's look at the positive condition John puts on this fellowship. And listen to this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, and not only forgive us, but to cleanse us. We have the condition of, con of our confession. We have the assurance of our confession. And finally, we have the fulfillment of our confession. John ends this thought by saying this fellowship produces joy. Joy that is complete. This is why it is so important, fathers and mothers, to produce an atmosphere of joy in our homes, both for those inside our family and those outside when we engage in hospitality. There is no way to have true fellowship with those in your family without joy being present. Joy is the proof of the fellowship within. We ought to be people who bring joy to those around us when they think of us just as Paul wrote to the church at Philippi when he remembered them. The Bible said it filled Paul's prayers with joy when he remembered the believers there. Can that be said about us with our children or with our friends or with other members of this church? I pray that it's so. Fathers, pray for a joyful home and start with you. Wives, pray for a joy joyful attitude of submission you are commanded to have one. Children, do your siblings think of you with joy? Do you have a brother or sister that constantly offends you? Don't forget, children, that the Lord has promised that as we sow, so we shall reap. Repent and have true and sweet fellowship within your family. Where does this joy originate from? Listen to Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, or I will put full of joy, I will be full of joy in the Lord, says another translation. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We must see that the joy we have comes from the work of God in our lives through the garments of salvation in Christ Jesus. 
We can't have this joy without repentance and the promised cleansing of Christ. This ties perfectly with John's arguments of the physical person of Christ. As I said earlier, without a physical Christ, there is no covering with the robe of righteousness or clothing with the garments of salvation. It is required for our complete and unhindered joy. So I ask you, church, what are you doing with your salvation? Are you in fellowship with God? Are you coasting through life pretend or are you coasting through life pretending you have fellowship because you prayed once or because you come to church? Children, are you living as Christians are called to live? Don't come to church saying yes ma'am or yes sir to all the grown-ups and have friendly hugs with your pals, but at home you scowl inwardly or outwardly to your parents' instruction or always looking for the best seat on the couch or the largest bowl of ice cream. This is the opposite of fellowship. And parents, look out for that and deal with that swiftly. Listen to the stern warning from Paul in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not, be even, must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in, you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But, with, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. One final word just to fathers. Men, if there is constant bickering and backbiting in your home, that is on you. Refuse to allow this. Turn down external fellowship opportunities until you get your home set straight. We are Christian men, and we lead our homes with joy. Well, moving on, verse 5 again continues to drill down on the physical aspect of this message. They heard it with their ears. And they proclaimed it with their mouths. If something is important and good and altogether a different message than the one you're used to hearing, your natural response is going to be to want to share the good news. You're going to want to proclaim it. We ought to be a people who hear of the good things that God has done and not stuff those into our little secret bottle. Instead, we ought to proclaim those things to one another and not be ashamed. We've been praying for this on Wednesday nights, for boldness and opportunities to proclaim the message to our friends and family. 
And with Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up, we will have opportunities to speak of Christ and the good things he has done. Some of us may not have this opportunity because of distance, etc. the rest of the year. So I would encourage you, church, and I say this to myself, let's not let this holiday season pass by without our friends and family hearing the truth and the good news of the gospel. One of the brothers prayed at a recent prayer meeting that our concern for proclaiming the gospel would be higher than our concern for what was in the oven that may potentially be burning. I thought this was a wonderful prayer to meditate on where our priorities are. John now shares with us what that message is. The message, he says, is the reason we have fellowship, the message that brings complete joy. It's the summation of all of Jesus' teachings. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. Three simple but very engaging, packed words. An, an attribute of God that is found throughout all of Scripture, book after book, chapter after chapter. Many pastors have preached whole sermons on these three words. There certainly is a lot to dig in, and in on and meditate on. But we'll end our time with, uh, this morning on this truth and what it means for us. As I sat and meditated on this little phrase, I could not help but start my meditation in the very beginning of our Bible. God said, let there be light. And you know what immediately appeared? Light, by itself. There was no sun yet. The light was from God. And then God immediately said that it was good. So God, who created the universe, who created the earth and heavens, who created all creeping things and flying things, who created all of mankind, spoke into existence an attribute of God himself as one of the first items created. He describes himself as the light, not a light, among other lights, nor is he a light bearer. And although he created light, he himself is not the created light. As I said, there's a plethora of scripture where God is described as light. Listen to a few here. Psalm 104, 1 through 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my soul, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment. God robes himself in light. It is the very glory of God. Picture a priest who puts on his priestly garment. This is God arraying himself in the light. Or listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immor immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. This light that God dwells in is an unapproachable light, it says, one that should not be trifled with. Think of a light shining so brightly that it literally prevents you from coming closer because it hurts your eyes. That's the picture here. We cannot approach God on our own. Isaiah 60, 19 through 20. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor, your bright, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. 
And one more, Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its light is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no nights there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. For the child of God, eternity has the imagery of being swallowed up in this light. So we have this juxtaposition of a light so unapproachable, yet the created lights from Genesis 1 will be done away with, and the Lord himself will be our light. We are going to see the face of Christ who will shine on us, a light that will not drive us away. Our lamp is a lamb. It is the light above, the light of salvation. It is Christ himself. When we think about what darkness represents, it is everything that is antithetical to God. And this is exactly what John says here. It is impossible for there to be any darkness in him at all. Proverbs declares that those who forsake the path of uprightness walk in the ways of darkness. And then the ninth plague on the, Egyptian, on the Egyptians, God used darkness as a sign of judgment against the whole land of Egypt. Darkness is embodied in distress, trouble, perplexity, <clears throat> perplexity and sorrow, and light is the opposite of these. And of course, we know that light and darkness cannot coexist. That is why it says it is a lie to say we have fellowship with him while we, while we walk in darkness. It's impossible. God is light, so fellowship cannot walk with darkness. So picture God as light and think about this scenario. Think about if you are in a pitch black room and there's a door in this room that opens to another room where the light is on. When you open the door, does the darkness stay in its bounds and the light stay in its bounds? No. Does the darkness spill into the lit room and dim the light in that room? No. The light overtakes the darkness. So what does this mean for us? Well, John describes a man who no longer walks in the ways of a dark world. We should no longer be characterized by dark ways of, cor of corruption or deceit or immorality. Ephesians tells, us, Ephesians tells us that we were at once, at one time in darkness, but now are light in the Lord, and we should walk as children of the light. So how do we walk in the light? Well, three things to consider from these verses. First, we are not to deceive ourselves. It does you no good if you lie to yourself and say one thing, about, one thing with your lips, but then live contrary to that in your heart. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation, so stop acting like you are not. It's easy for us to come Sunday morning to hear good preaching and have our ears tickled, but James tells us that's not enough. He says we must be doers of the word, not just hearers. And we must not be prideful to puff up ourselves to say we have no need for Christ. 
Right here, John says that if we say we have no sin, again, we are a liar and there is no light in us. Second, we should confess our sins. John says that we cannot act like there is no sin within us. Therefore, we ought to root out the sinful sinful deeds of the flesh. And when we confess, God is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. And when we are forgiven and cleansed, there is no darkness in us. Therefore, we are walking in light. Three things about this confession. First, it is conditional. We must confess our sins. There is an expectation that we will actively pursue forgiveness through the confession of our sins. There is an outcome when we do confess, and there is an outcome when we do not confess. Second, there is assurance that our sins will be forgiven. We do not have to fret over our confession, whether we've done the right amount of penance before we are forgiven. No, Scripture says we will be forgiven, and you can take that to the bank. And finally, there is fulfillment and restoration. He will cleanse us. He will purify us. Young James, in his testimony last week before his baptism, reminded us that our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, which is such a great picture. The reason it's a great picture is this. If you travel north from here in a straight line up the globe, you will eventually hit the North Pole. And if you keep walking, you will then start walking south. There is a start and an end to the south and a start and an end to the north. But if you were to start walking east, there's never a point where you start to walk west. You are always walking east. There is no ending point, which is the glorious picture of this scripture and agrees with what John is saying, that God is faithful and just and he will forgive us. There is no end to his forgiveness in Christ the Lord. And that is a glorious hope we can rest in. Finally, God's word must be within us. Christ, yes, but also Christ as the living word of God. We need to be in the word of God, meditating on it, praying through it. Chris gave, us, Chris gave a very helpful and practical talk in memorizing scripture at one of the beer and psalms. If you hadn't, haven't heard that, I would suggest you get a hold of it and listen. We have no excuse for not memorizing scripture. We also have a church-wide Bible reading plan with printouts available and an app that was built and even an audio podcast version. Get into a daily routine now of reading scripture. It's proven very beneficial for me to know that there are others reading the exact scripture that I am that day and encourage one another. Walking in the light is a transformation to be like God who is light and love. When you feel the light, you see the light and confess your sins. We have the ongoing, and when you confess your sins, we have the ongoing blessing of being cleansed from the sins that we hate. Note that John tells us that God is light before he tells us that God is love in chapter 4, verse 16. Light comes before love, for light uncovers that which is hidden. When we have fellowship with God, We cannot hide our sins. Speaking of the Bible reading plan, this past week we read Hebrews chapter 10 
And I thought these few verses encapsulated John's message to us so well as Hebrews outlines the confidence and assurance we have. Listen, starting to verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our fellowship in the light with God and with one another is secured in the work of Christ. So my call to you today is to be a church that has true fellowship with one another and our God because we are not ashamed to confess our sins to one another and to God, the God of light who uncovers our sin, because we can stand on the promise of forgiveness and cleansing through the advocacy of Christ who physically lived, was physically crucified, and who was physically raised, and who physically ascended in triumph to the right hand of God, to which we respond, hallelujah, what a savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We ask for your preserve we, we thank you for preserving the letter of John so that we might benefit from it today. Show us where we have darkness lurking in our hearts, sin hiding from the light that is keeping us from the joyful fellowship with one another and with you. May we rest on your faithfulness to forgive us our sins and be eager to put away the flesh and walk in the light as Christ our Savior is in the light and from whom our light comes. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.